Amen. As we continue our study through the Gospel of John this morning, I want to encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 5. We're going to pick up exactly where we left off last week at the end of verse 15, beginning in verse 16, and are actually, this is going to be surprising to you, going to go through the end of the chapter uh, from verses 16 all the way through 47 this morning. If you've been here for some time, you might have noticed this, but it's been my habit over the years to not really talk about politics on Sunday morning. That's not out of fear. Um, There are many reasons for that. One of the reasons, just secondary reason, one of the reasons I'm not a real political junkie. I don't, I don't read a lot of news. I do read the Oconee Enterprise every Thursday. Uh, so if you want to know about public intoxications and shoplifting and all the things Oconee County will never build, I'm your man. And so that's what I tend to absorb the most, but uh, that's just not something I spend a lot of time on. Uh, but there's a greater reason than that. The greater reason is that There is no generation, this is obvious, in all of history that has received more news than this generation has. We are constantly bombarded with news. We hear news all of the time. And my responsibility, my goal on Sunday mornings is to take the 35 minutes God has given me. And I would say this too. Previous generation of pastors had Sunday nights and Wednesday nights and other opportunities to speak in this way. I have 35 minutes a week with you. And in those 35 minutes a week, my greatest desire is to turn your face and your eyes and your ears from all of the things you've been hearing all week and to turn it completely upon Jesus Christ. That's, that's my calling, my greatest calling, and that is also your greatest need. Your greatest need is to step into here every Sunday morning and know Jesus and get excited about Jesus and see Jesus as greater than all of those things. And so my primary desire is to get you to come into this room and realize you must seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that Christ might be supreme in your life. But there is one pretty massive exception to this. It is something I've been thinking about more and more, something the Lord has really convicted me about, that we must speak when political and cultural issues are also biblical issues. If God has something to say about something, we have to say that. We have to know those things and we have to say those things. We, we preach the whole counsel of God. And so if there is any area in which God has something to say, that is an area in which we must be ready and willing to speak. Listen, not primarily because we love America, primarily because we love God and his word and his kingdom. That's why we, that's why we have to talk about those things. So the, the flag that we're waving is the flag of Christ and his kingdom. And if he speaks about something, we must speak about those things as well. And there are a lot of issues that fall into those categories. The issue of marriage and, and gender and sanctity of human life and addiction and racism and pornography and poverty. These are all issues that we think are political issues, but they're primarily biblical issues. Primarily, before anything else, they're biblical issues. And in those issues, the only guide we have is the word of God. Let me be really clear on something. When it comes to those issues, we do not get our talking points from Fox News. We get them from the word of God. Like, I don't want to hear your talking points from the news on those issues. I want to hear your talking points from the word of God. And so on those issues, we must have something to say. I often say that... The posture of modern parenting is, 
eyes closed and hands over ears. Uh, if I can just act like nothing's going on, nothing's going to go on and my kids are going to be okay. But I don't care how much you close your eyes and cover your ears, there's still something going on. And so it is with the world in which we live. We can act as if nothing's going on. We can close our eyes and cover our ears. But the reality is there are things going on contrary to the word of God and things in which we must speak. We have been called to be salt and light. And so for us to ignore what is happening around us is in reality a neglect of our calling as followers of Jesus Christ. I love the way John Stone Street says this. He is someone you should know. He's the director of the Colson Center. He says there's four questions every Christian should ask about culture. Four questions every Christian should ask about culture. What good can we promote, celebrate, and preserve? What is there good that we can promote and celebrate and preserve? Second, what's missing that we can contribute? What is missing from the culture around us that the church must step in and contribute? What evil can we stop? What evil is there going on around us that the church has the ability to stop? And finally, I love this, what's broken that can be restored? What is the brokenness we see around us? Not just the evil that we can stop and the good that we can contribute, but what's broken that the church has been called to restore? And so we do have a responsibility to think carefully and deeply and and to speak and to stand for the issues which are primarily biblical issues. And there is one issue that is the greatest of all. It is not the issue of marriage or gender or sanctity of life or racism or poverty or pornography. There is one issue that stands above all, one issue in which we must be most willing and ready to stand. And that is the issue of the supremacy of Jesus Christ in a pluralistic age. The supremacy of Jesus Christ in a pluralistic age, in an age in which wants, which we want to be able to say, well, everyone's okay and everyone's going to make it in their own way. The calling, primary calling we have is to say, there is one way to the Father and his name is Jesus Christ. That is the biggest issue that we face. Our culture is increasingly hostile to what we believe and it is not going to get better. And the one area in which we must be the most ready to speak is the area of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what the Lord is saying to me is that in order for us to do that, the church of Jesus Christ must have full heads and full hearts. Our heads must be full of knowledge of God, the doctrines of God. We have started a new program where on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings, we are teaching our children kindergarten through fifth grade Bible doctrines. Every week, they're getting Bible doctrines. And you can get a parent guide that shows you what doctrines we're teaching every single week so you can reinforce them at home. We need doctrine. We need Christian worldview. We need to know how to see the world in light of the word of God. But we not only need full heads, we need full hearts. We need passion and conviction and determination and courage. We need the willingness to, to suffer for those things which matter most. I'm not concerned that you suffer for your political opinions, but I'm very concerned for our willingness to suffer for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if you suffer your, for your conspiracy theories, that's on you. But we want to be willing to suffer for what we know to be true, and that is Christ. And I say all that to say to you that John chapter 5, Jesus shows us how this is done. 
in a very surprising way, we find in John 5 a model for the courage that we need to live in the time in which God has placed us. Can I just remind you, God has sovereignly placed us in this time, in this moment to be the people of God right here and right now. So our responsibility is to know what is happening right here and right now so that we can be the faithful people of God. We're sovereignly here for a reason and Jesus gives us a model for the courage we need. Let me remind you of the context, which is in verses one through 15. I won't read that, but I'll remind you of that context. Jesus heals a lame man, tells him to get up and pick up his mat. He does as he is walking with his mat, with his new legs. He is stopped by the Sabbath police, the Jews who are angry that he's carrying his mat on the Sabbath. They tell him, who told you to do this? To which he blames Jesus. He says, I'm only doing this because Jesus or a man told me to do it. He says, well, well, who's the man? Well, I don't know who the man is, but he blames Jesus. He then goes to the temple. Jesus finds him in the temple and Jesus says, look, you've been made well. Go and, and sin no more so that nothing worse will happen to you. What Jesus is saying is the reason for your physical healing is because I want to do a greater miracle in your life. And that's a spiritual healing. I did not primarily come to fix your legs. I came to fix your heart. And everything Jesus was doing was pushing this man towards spiritual life. And yet this man did not walk toward Jesus. He walked away from Jesus. He rejected Jesus Christ. He took steps not towards life, but towards death. He then went and told on uh, Jesus to the Jews. He went and said, no, I'll tell you who did it. It was Jesus who did it. And that's where we left off last week. We left off with a man who had received new legs, but not a new heart. And he was taking the new legs and he was using those new legs to take steps towards hell. Not steps towards life and following Jesus. It's a tragic story. We know this is the interpretation of the story for many ways, but primarily because of the context which is given us. Because it says this, and here we start in verse 16. It says... That and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. That word persecuting is very important for our study today. They were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And so Jesus knew that him doing this on the Sabbath, he did this intentionally. He could have done it on any day. He did it on the Sabbath. This is the reason they were persecuting him. He was doing it on the Sabbath to expose them, their lack of understanding of God. And so this is really the beginning of the hostility towards Jesus in the Gospel of John. This is kind of where it starts. And things from this moment get worse and worse and worse. But it says this is why they persecuted. Why? Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus has an opportunity here. He knows their anger. He knows the rising persecution. And so Jesus could, and we wouldn't have thought anything about it. Jesus remained faithful to the calling of God upon his life. He could have remained faithful to who he is as the son of God and just walked away. He could have done that. And he would have been okay in doing that. And there's times in which he does that. And we would not have questioned if Jesus would have just walked away. But Jesus does not walk away. He says this in verse 17. Jesus answered them. That word answered is a pretty rare word in the Greek. It is a word that was really only used in the court of law to give a testimony in trial. So what it's saying essentially is that when Jesus found out he was being persecuted because he did this on the Sabbath, he took his stand. He got on the stand and he gave a testimony and he said, my father is working until now and I am working. It seems harmless to us, but what Jesus was saying is the reason that I'm doing this is because my father does this. I am the son of God and you don't understand because you don't know God the father. He says this to the Jewish leaders. Well, that doesn't help things. 
It says in verse 18, this is why, remember how it said just a minute ago, this was why, verse 16, now 18, this was why the Jews were seeking the more to kill him. What were they trying to do in verse 16? Persecute him. What were they trying to do in verse 18? Kill him. What's the difference? The statement Jesus made in verse 17. Do you just think Jesus knows what he's doing? He knows exactly what he's doing. So in the context of persecution, Jesus makes a stronger statement, and now they're seeking all the more to kill him. Why? Because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so with this one statement in their mind, he goes from Sabbath breaking to blasphemy. He goes from persecution to plans for his death. Jesus knows this. He knows their anger. He knows the cost, but he still does it. It would be enough if we stopped right there. Jesus, with this courage, knowing they were going to persecute him, goes a little bit further and says, well, I do this because I'm the son of God. But then, without any hesitation, he gives us 27 verses in which he speaks verse after verse after verse after verse. Every single verse going directly against everything they believe and think, confronting everything that they have spoken and in their mind, 27 verses he gives after this. He had already gone from persecution to wanting to be killed by them, and now he has 27 verses more. The point that we need to see right here and the point of the text this morning is this. In the face of persecution, Jesus does not back down, he doubles down. In the face of rising persecution, Jesus does not back down. He doesn't walk away. He doubles down. Doubles down means that he stands even more firm in the face of opposition. Jesus does not back down, Jesus doubles down. And he doubles down on four truths about himself that he gives in verses 19 all the way through 29. Now, I'm going to read those verses and then go over these four things very quickly. The reason is this. These are some of the most dense verses in the Gospel of John. But we are going to see these themes introduced here many, many more times. So don't think I'm glossing over this and neglecting it. I'm giving us a little overview of these four truths, but I promise you when we get to chapter 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and 10, we will see more and more of all of these truths. Look at what he says in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, meaning let me tell you what is true. I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. Now just remember all of this is Jesus speaking directly to those who want to kill him. For the father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the son that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now here. When the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. 
do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. It would have been impossible for Jesus to say something more strong than he just did. He doubles down, and he doubles down on four truths. Let me give them. The first one is this. Jesus says, I am the son. I am the son. Did you notice as we were reading that Ten times Jesus calls himself the son. He already said, essentially in verse 17, that he was the son by saying, my father is working until now. But ten times explicitly he refers himself as the son. I say to you, verse 19, the son can do nothing of his own. He does what the father does. The son does likewise. Verse 20, the father loves the son. Verse 21, the son gives life to whom he will. Verse 22, all judgment is given to the Son. Verse 23, all may honor the Son. Those who don't honor the Son don't honor the Father. He is, in verse 25, the Son of God. He is, in verse 27, the Son of Man. Ten times he reveals himself as the Son. Now, that may not seem that significant to us, but there is a reason that the persecution even increases more now here. And think about this. The one statement that made them want to kill him was that I do what my father is doing. So his claim to sonship is what makes the persecution worse. And so what Jesus does is that moment is 10 more times refers to himself explicitly as the son. He says it over and over, it's always the son, the son, the son, not a son. Every single time, it's the son, him referring to himself as the son. So what he means by that is a few things. By calling himself the son, what he's saying is that he is God. They took it this way. I mean, this is what we know in verse 18. Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. To which we say, yes, exactly. That's exactly what he was doing. Jesus was making himself equal with God. He is the word there in the beginning who is creating all things. It tells us in verse 19 that the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Now listen to how massive the next statement is at the end of verse 19. Whatever the father does, the son does likewise. Only God can say that. Who else can say, I do everything the father does? Nobody can say that. Like, that's a ridiculous thing to say. You, you have to be God to say that. Everything the Father does, I do. I don't do anything the Father doesn't do. And the only thing I do is the things that the Father tells me to do. Well, you can't say that unless you're God. And they know that. They know he's claiming to be God. Verse one, four, verse, chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Glories of the only begotten from God, full of grace and truth. John 1, 18, no one has seen God at any time, but Jesus has made him known. Jesus is God in the flesh. And when they decide to kill him because he claims to be God, he says, that's exactly what I claim. I am the son. I am the second person of the Trinity. I am God. The irony here is that they were accusing him as blasphemy. But in their rejection of Jesus Christ, they were committing blasphemy. Jesus was saying what is true, they were denying what is true, and they were the ones guilty of blaspheming God. But by saying he's the son, he's also saying he is savior. He is the son 
of God. He is the promised Messiah, the one who is coming to save his people. He says it there in verse 25, the voice of the Son of God. This is a title for Jesus Christ. He is saying, I am the promised Messiah. You have been waiting for generations for the one to come. Since Genesis chapter 3, you have been waiting for the Messiah to come. And every generation of Jewish people have gotten promises of the coming of the Messiah to which Jesus says, he's here. I'm the promised one. All of the Bible was pointing to me. I'm the fulfillment of all of the promises. John 3.16, God sent his son. As the son, he is the promised Messiah. And what he is saying is, you will never be saved, think about this, outside of me, Jesus says. You're looking for salvation. You will never be saved without me. He is God. He is Savior. He is King. He refers to himself as the Son of Man, a title that is first given to us in Daniel uh, about a prophecy that one day this great Son of Man will come to judge the world and he will not only be the Savior of the world, he will be the ruler and the King of the world. He is the promised Son of David who will come and rule and reign over all people for all time. Write down in your notes Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a picture of this son who would one day come. It says this, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Do we feel that? Do we feel the rulers taking counsel together against the Lord and his anointed Jesus Christ? Do you feel that? It's exactly what they're doing. And what they say is this, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We don't need anything to do with this son. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's Jesus Christ. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, be warned. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled, but blessed are all who take refuge in him. O rulers, be warned. O rulers, be warned. The son has come and he is savior and he is king and, and he is God and everyone will stand before him. And so if you do not bow now, you will bow later. This is what Jesus is saying. The implication that he's saying to these religious leaders is that you don't know, nor do you love the father because you don't know or love me. He not only says, I am God, he says, second, I am life. In verse 21, he says, for as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son, who he is, gives life to all whom he will. He is the giver of physical life. He is the giver of spiritual life. In John 1, Jesus is the one who gave life to every creation so that we would know that the one who has the power to give physical life is the one who has the power to give spiritual life. What Jesus is saying is that every person that does not come to Jesus, it does not matter how spiritual they are. It doesn't matter how committed they are to their Hinduism or Buddhism or some kind of spiritual new age atheism, whatever it may be. It doesn't matter how rooted they are spiritually in that. If they don't have Jesus, they are spiritually dead. 
So Jesus looks at the spiritual leaders of his generation and says, you have no spiritual life. I mean, look down again at verses 24 through 26. He says this, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. But he who does not comes into judgment, but is passed from death to life. He does not come into judgment, but passed from death to life. So how do we escape the judgment of God from Jesus Christ? How do we escape the wrath of God? Jesus Christ, because Jesus is the life. That's the whole point of this book, John 20, 31. Jesus is saying to us, and John is reminding us that Jesus has come to give life. John 14, 6, he is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no claim more contrary to our pluralistic culture than John 14, 6. There is no way to God outside of Jesus. There is no truth outside of the truth of Jesus. And there is no life outside of the life of Jesus. So Jesus looks at these spiritual leaders and says, you have spiritual leadership, but you have no spiritual life. What essentially he is saying to them is what he says explicitly in Matthew 23, you are whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but you're just dead bones. I am God. I am life. I am judge. Third, I am judge. Verse 22. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. Jesus is, Matthew 28, the mediator of the authority of God. He is the mediator of the judgment of God. So it's not that God the father does have judgment. It's that God the father has given judgment to the son. Which means one day Jesus will speak and all will rise. And those will rise to eternal life or to eternal judgment. Look at verses 25 through 29. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. That's what's happening. He's saying you're dead and you're hearing the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. If you would hear me, you would live, but you don't hear me. And so you will die. For as the Father has life in himself, he's granted the Son to have life in himself. He's given him authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So on judgment day, which there will be a judgment day, everyone will stand before Jesus and the only thing will matter is what you've done with Jesus. Nothing else matters. What matters is what you've done with Jesus. And what he's saying to these religious leaders is that instead of rejecting me, you should be receiving me because you will stand before me one day and spend eternity separated from God under the wrath of God because of your rejection of the Son of God. So is he doubling down? I'm God, I'm life, I'm judge, and finally forth, he says, and I must be worshipped. Verse 23. That all may honor the son just as they honor the fathers. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. This is massive. These are men who are convinced they're honoring the father. They want to kill Jesus because he's not honoring the father. But they're committed to honoring the father. And what Jesus says, if you reject me, you don't know the father. And you don't honor the father. To honor the father means to worship and give glory to, to God and to esteem. Esteem Jesus is the highest and greatest. The reason that so many of our songs are about the exaltation of Jesus Christ is because Jesus Christ is to be worshipped above all. He is the object of our worship. He's the center of our entire lives. And so what he says to the religious leaders, you are persecuting me, but you should be bowing down and worshipping me. Can we just acknowledge the courage of this moment? This is why they wanted to kill him, because he claims to be God. 
To which he says, I am God, and I am life, and I am judge, and right now you should worship me. And if you don't worship me, you don't know the Father, and you don't love the Father. Those who have spent their life saying that they're honoring the Father don't have anything to do with the Father because they've rejected the Son. You can't say you love the Father if you're not in love with the Son. Jesus is not backing down. Jesus is speaking truth in the midst of hostility. He doubles down, but he doubles down on the one thing that matters most, himself. And he's doubling down on the one thing that bothers them the most, himself. It's easy for us to double down on something no one cares about. It's another thing to double down on something that makes people increasingly angry and upset. What Jesus does is he takes the very thing that makes them want to kill him and he doubles down on it. And then before they could give him any answer with their red faces and steam coming out of their ears, he explains why it's true in the following verses. Let me read them quickly. Verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. What he says here in verse 31 is true. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. I, I may be crazy. I may be insane. I may be a blasphemer if it's just me saying this. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I received is from man, but I say these things so you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness, second time it says this, about me that the father has sent me. And the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in, my own, in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Why would Moses accuse them? For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? What Jesus says is, you may not believe my testimony, but how about the testimony of John the Baptist? He bore witness about me. How about the testimony of my own miraculous works? They bear testimony about me. Go back to the story that we just heard. So they saw the supernatural work of God, and instead of causing that to believe in Jesus Christ, it caused them to be angry with Jesus Christ. So they rejected the works. Verse 37, the father bears witness about Jesus. Verses 38 through 40, the word bears witness about Jesus. Every single verse in this book is pointing us to Jesus Christ. And he says, you have spent your life searching the scriptures, but if you really knew the scriptures, you would love me because everything points to me. And finally, he says, even Moses, whom you say you love and worship, he is the one who bears witness about me. Verses 45 through 46, everything is pointing to to me, Jesus doubles down. You say, what does that have to do with us? 
Well, it has a lot to do with us because in John 20, 21, at the very end of the gospel of John, Jesus giving his great commission says this, as the father has sent me, so I send you. What that means is this, the father sent the son into a hostile world to double down on the truth. And in the exact same way, he has sent us into a hostile world to double down on the truth. We have been sent in the same way that Jesus was sent with his truth and with his courage. And in the pluralistic world in which we live, these truths are considered arrogant and hateful and intolerant for us to have the audacity to say Jesus alone is the way to God. That is insane to the culture around us. And the question is, as the pressure builds, will we back down or double down? That's the question. And the call of this text is this, we must double down on Jesus. I don't want you to keep doubling down on a thousand other things of lesser importance. I want you to double down on Jesus, committed to Jesus and who he is, not because it's arrogant or hateful or intolerant, because it's true. And if it's true, there's nothing that matters more than for us to believe it and for us to stand on it and say something about it. And the reality is Jesus comes, and this is why John chapter 1 is so important, to give us truth and grace. And so Jesus will stand to the people like this and he will make the harshest statements you can imagine directly to their face and then he will go out of his way to spend a day with a woman at the well who's desperately in need of living water. And he will go to an official son and see his whole family come to Christ and he will step around a bunch of people and go to a crippled man and give him his legs. Why? Because with grace and tenderness and kindness and love, Jesus speaks truth. And even when that truth is hard to hear, there is nothing more loving and gracious and kind than to say that which is true, if that which is true determines life and death eternally. There is so much grace and kindness in what Jesus does. I think about the potential overwhelmed as I walked in this room last night and saw over 200 uh, middle school and high school students in this room worshiping Jesus Christ and to see the way in which the Holy Spirit was working. I think about the students here on Sunday morning and the way in which they gathered to pray at the Tate Center this week. And I just think about the next generation, the children in this room, and you just wonder what God could do in our city and around the world if those students were committed to double down on Jesus. What could God do in your family, in your workplace? If you double down in Jesus, will it cost you? It will cost you like it cost Jesus, but we're willing to pay the cost because it's true. And so we stand, taking the words from Philippians 1, we stand on what is true and we don't back down on what is true, even if it costs us something. And we strive, we don't just believe it, we say it. It's one thing to believe it, it's another thing to say it, to, to speak the truth in a hostile world because nothing matters more than this truth. We stand and we strive and we suffer. We're willing to be courageous and to pay the price to double down on what matters most. Why? Because as the Father has sent the Son, so the Son sends us to double down on Jesus in a hostile world. So let's go. And everywhere we go, let's... Honor Jesus by standing and striving and suffering for that which matters most. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.